All right, how many have heard of Benjamin Keach? Benjamin Keach. There are like four. And that saddens me, and that's why we do things like this. Um, how many of you have heard of Charles Spurgeon? Who planted Charles Spurgeon's church? Benjamin Keach. That's right. That's right. So that, that's why Benjamin Keach is significant. And even as we look at Western civilization, as we look at America today, one of the significant issues is that we have become detached from a sense of history, from a sense of tradition, and in that we have lost a sense of identity. And Christianity is the same way. Evangelicalism at large, Southern Baptists I think in particular, have lost a connection with their identity as Baptists. We've lost our identity in the tradition and the stream in which we stand. And, and again, the, the fact that we don't know the name Benjamin Keach, it doesn't surprise me because I probably would not have known the, ben, the name Benjamin Keach until I went to seminary, but it's, it's important for us to know the names of the men and the women who have passed on the gospel proclamation down through the generations to us. And that is why this is a significant endeavor. I, I grew up and spent a lot of time with my grandparents, and my grandmother is a storyteller. And she would tell me story after story of her childhood starting at age two when she was almost abducted by a man in California, all the way up to the present. And I have a sense of connection with my family heritage because of the fact that my grandmother was a storyteller. And so we need to be storytellers. We need to continue to talk about the great men and women of the faith coming before us to help us to understand who we are, where we're situated. We are in America in 2019. That says a lot about where we have come from. The fact that we are in America, the fact that it's 2019, understanding what's come before can help us find our bearings in terms of where we're at. And so that's what we're looking at tonight. And oftentimes we, we sort of poo-poo the past because we have smartphones and tablets and laptops and Benjamin Keach was uneducated, largely self-educated. What do we have to possibly learn from him? And I think there's a lot. I think there's a lot. And so tonight, as we think about where we're at, the First Baptist Church of Fisherville, Kentucky, what does the name tell us? First, tells us that this was the First Baptist Church in Fisherville, Kentucky. Fisherville, Kentucky tells us that this church is located in Fisherville. The fact that this is a church tells us that we are affiliated with some form of Christianity. But what does Baptist have to say about our identity and what we are doing here as a church? And so to get our bearings in this, I, I'm trying to prepare this was miserable because there's so much going on in terms of historical context, trying to orient ourselves to understand who Benjamin Keach was as a child of his time. And so just to briefly get us up to speed with Benjamin Keach, we have to think about the English Reformation as Keach pastored a church in London. So where did the English Reformation start, or with whom? Nope. I'm Henry VIII, I am Henry VIII. There. Sang for you, Harvey. <laughs> Henry VIII. Why did Henry VIII start the English Reformation? 
because he wanted a divorce. Very good. Henry VIII dies 1547. He is succeeded in the throne by his son, Edward VI, who at the time of his rise to power was about nine. Uh, Edward VI, through him, sort of as a proxy, the Protestant Reformation continued. Edward VI was followed by, does anybody know? Bloody Mary. Very good. Why do we call her Bloody Mary? She killed a bunch of Protestants. In an effort to try and overthrow the English Reformation, Mary I, Bloody Mary, she slaughtered hundreds of Protestants in that effort. Mary thankfully only reigned for six years, and she was followed by Elizabeth I. Very good. Elizabeth I, she reigned from 1559 to 1603. She continued to push forward the English Reformation, but at this point it was becoming, the the church and the state were incredibly tied together with a form of Calvinistic theology. There were various Anglican ministers who could not abide with this status because of the, the connection with the state made the church utterly unholy. These ministers were called Puritans. Some of the Puritans separated from the English church. They were called separatists. Very good. Separatists or dissenters. And so you have this group of Anglican ministers who are separating themselves from the Church of England. One such minister, his name was John Smith. He was a dissenting minister. He separated from the Church of England, took with him a congregation, and they began to be persecuted. In about 1609, this congregation, the whole congregation, upped and moved to Holland. Can you imagine that? We at Fisherville begin to be persecuted by the local Louisville authorities, and we say, well, it's freer in Texas. We as a whole church are going to move to Texas. <laughs> yep, it, it's, a, it's a pretty amazing thought. Granted, the congregation would have been much smaller, but there's still this, this desire for religious freedom. So as they travel to Holland, this group of brothers, the dissenters at this point, they're not yet Baptists, begin to come in contact with the Anabaptists. Who knows what the Anabaptists are? Anybody? How does the name Minnow Simmons sound? Does anybody know that name? The Mennonites? Anabaptists were radical reformers, and they were made infamous by a, a sort of power grab takeover of the city of Munster in the 1500s. Because of that, the name Anabaptist in every other country in the world was like, it was like a swear word. You did not want to be called an Anabaptist. But these people, John Smith, his congregation, moved to Holland, begin to to speak with the Anabaptists. They begin to embrace various parts of Anabaptist theology. Not baptism at this point, but John Smith, through reading the New Testament, becomes convinced of baptistic principles. John Smith then baptizes himself and then all of his congregation. So he baptizes himself, he baptizes the congregation, then they want to join themselves with another group of of Anabaptists called the Waterlanders. The Waterlanders say, 
nope, that baptism was illegitimate because he baptized himself. You have to be baptized by a minister. So you're all going to have to be rebaptized, which is funny because they were rebaptized. Now they have to be re rebaptized. <laughs> a group of these dissenting, uh, still dissenters, but this group that's trying to become Anabaptists, following the lead of a man named Thomas Helwes, goes back to England. They say, we've had enough of this. We're going back to England. In 1612, Thomas Helwes is imprisoned almost as soon as they get back and dies in prison three years later in 1615. His congregation, however, practicing Baptistic principles and embracing Arminian theology become known as the General Baptists. General because they view the, the atonement as a general atonement. The atonement is, available, or is, is sort of applicable to all. So the General Baptists are born there. Is that where we as Southern Baptists come from? No. We as Southern Baptists coming from the Charleston Baptist Association years and years and years and years ago follow the Second London Confession, which was formed by the English Particular Baptists, which is a different storyline. But don't lose the General Baptists. That's very important because Benjamin Keach started as a General Baptist. So it's, it, that, that is an important piece of this. The Particular Baptists come from a different group of dissenters in London who followed the teaching of a man named Henry Jacob. Henry Jacob formed a dissenting church in London in 1616. He eventually left for the New World to come to Virginia in 1622. At that point, they got a new pastor named, where are my notes? John Lathrop. He was the pastor there until 1634. In 1634, he also left for the New World, all of them in search of freedom. This church, as a dissenting church, would have still continued to practice infant baptism. They would have had Calvinistic theology. They were a, um, in a sense, it would have felt like an, a, a low church Anglican church. If, if you know, it would have felt similar in liturgy to not like us, but more like us than the Catholic church. I don't, I don't even know how to, exp I don't know how to explain that. They were a dissenting congregation who baptized babies. Lathrop was succeeded by a man named Henry Jesse. So this church is known as the Jacob Lathrop Jesse Church, the JLJ Church. So you might see that in various places. He took the pastor in about 1636. At that time, in this dissenting Puritan congregation, various ministers began to be convinced that infant baptism was bunk. It's garbage. As they're reading the New Testament, they see the fact that baptism is based on profession and it must be immersion. So you must be dunked whole body. Not a part can be above the water. And they became known as sort of cynically by those opposing them as the dippers because they dipped their uh, baptizees. So this group, following a man named John Spilsbury, in around 1638, forms a congregation. That congregation, by 1644, will have branched off into seven more congregations. Does anybody know what happened in 1644? These Baptists got together, and they wrote the First London Confession. So they had been accused of being Anabaptists. 
they had been accused of having various forms of sexual immorality going on while they were practicing baptism. They were accused of being cultists. They were accused of being Arminians. And so they wrote the First London Confession as a defense against all of these accusations to sort of clear their name in London. And it must have worked because from 1644 till the late 1650s, they went from seven churches to 150 churches throughout London. These Baptists were passionate about evangelism. They were passionate about church planting. And that's our heritage. That's our heritage. This group, under John Spilsbury that left, there are names like William Kiffin, Hansard Knowles, names that would have or should be big within Baptist circles, but they're largely unheard of. You may know William Kiffin, though. I don't know if any of you have heard the story of the man whom the king asked to borrow 10,000 pounds. And he said, well, I won't loan you 10,000 pounds, but I'll just give you 5,000 pounds. Has anybody heard that? No? It's a story I've even heard it on Christian radio. That man was William Kiffin. William Kiffin was a Baptist, and he was a glover. A glover is someone who works with leather. And that's another piece of our heritage, is these Baptist men were, because they were not affiliated with the church, could not be educated in church schools, these men were self-taught, self-educated, hard-working tradesmen. They worked all day to provide for their family and then would spend their evening studying the word or preaching the gospel. This wasn't, there was no career building, ladder climbing, corporate politics like we see in some Christian denominations today. These men loved the Lord. They were concerned about gospel proclamation and that is how they spent their lives. And that also is part of our heritage as Baptists. So again, from this one church in 1638, you have six churches by 1644. You have 150 churches by the late 1650s. And it's into this context that we meet Benjamin Keach. So everything I've talked about so far has been centered in London. Keach is born in a small town called Stoke Hammond, which is in Buckinghamshire, which is about an hour west of London. And so that is where Keach is born. He was born into an Anglican family to John and Fedora Keach. But Benjamin was baptized into a general Baptist assembly in, at the age of 15, so 15 years later. And many of the early, uh, many, uh, like many of the early Baptist ministers, Keach had no formal training. No formal training. Everything, I have two, if you want to look at them. These are two of the books that Keach wrote. There are many, many more, and he was all self-taught. Uh, up, up to a certain age, he had some education. Um, and one of Keech's goals in life was to help train ministers, which is why he wrote this book, Preaching from Types and Metaphors. And Keech himself said, The knowledge of the original languages in which the scriptures are penned is of very great utility, that we may converse with that sacred book in its emphatical and native idiom. Keech labored to learn Greek and Hebrew to the best of his ability so that he could be a faithful minister in his own, on his own, burning the candle at both ends. 
So Keech is baptized into a general Baptist communion at 15. He is ordained to preach three years later, and very shortly after that is married to one Miss Jane Grove. She would die about 10 years later. So she died around 1670. She and Keech would have five children. Only three of them would survive infancy. So over that 10-year stretch, Keech lost two children and his wife, um, which was, I, I can't even imagine how devastating. So Keech began preaching in this area about an hour's drive northwest of, of London, and in 1662, the Act of Uniformity was enacted. Does anybody know what the Act of Uniformity entailed? Had to conform to the state church, that's right. And so they put things in place like the Conveticling Act, which means you could not gather for religious purposes with more than five people not of the same family. So that would kill dissenting churches. You could not preach the gospel within five miles of a town. Things, things of this nature that would have utterly decimated the gospel preaching um, for these dissenting congregations. It basically crushed the ability for these ministers to, to do church without the fear of imprisonment. And prison in England in these days, which is amazing when you think about John Bunyan, who was in prison for 18 years, prison was a miserable reality. It was dank, it was dirty, it was wet, it was cold. It, you didn't live last very long in prison generally. Your family had to provide food for you. It, it was an awful situation for you to be in to go into prison. And so when this act passed, Keech's location was hit very, very hard with persecution. And in 1644, Keech himself was brought up on trial for being a seditious heretical, and schismatic person. His crime? He developed a primer for children to learn. And he was accused of being schismatic, heretical, and seditious. He was he brought before trial, and it was interesting, he was brought before trial just a few months after several folks had been sent to London on a death sentence for conveticling. So you can imagine the things that would have been running through Benjamin's mind as he's awaiting the, the jury and the pronouncement. He was fined just 20 pounds, which at that time, it, it, now it's not a lot. I mean, what's exchange rate? About $1.60 probably. But then that would have been a significant amount of money for a poor preacher. He was found, fined 20 pounds and sentenced to two two-hour sessions in the pillory. Does anybody know what a pillory is? The stocks, that's right. So you stand in the middle of the town on a box with your hands like this, your head locked in the stocks for two hours while the crowd mocks you as you stand there. What did Keech do while he was in the pillory? He preached. Keech preached. He said, you know why I'm standing here? It's because I'm identifying with the sufferings of my, Jesus, my, my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He preached. When the Anglican minister, the rector of the church, brought charges against him and said, no, you're here because you're a heretic, the crowd actually denounced the rector because he was a drunkard. And so Keech preached the gospel from the stocks on two separate occasions for two hours at a time. Another time, Benjamin Keech was preaching the gospel and he was approached by a group of cavalrymen. Four of these cavalrymen were so enraged at Keech's preaching that they bound him to the ground and they were going to spur him with their horses. Does anybody know what that is? 
where that you just allow the horses to stomp away at whatever is on the ground. Keach, thankfully, was, had an officer intervene on his behalf before they could stomp him, which I'm sure would have resulted in severe maiming, if not death. So Keach, on two separate occasions, and I'm sure that there were more, faced this, these sorts of persecutions, but was not deterred. He was not deterred. He continued to preach the gospel. But in 1668, he decided to move his family to London so that they could avoid some of this persecution. Now, t- London, yes, is still in England, but it's very similar to urban culture today. There's different, different sorts of lifestyles are tolerated in urban culture that would not necessarily be tolerated in small-town Kentucky. And it was very similar with London in those days. The, the Buckinghamshire, the Stokehamon, where Keach was, would have been... Um, sort of backwards in its ways. They would have been very apt to enforce these laws, whereas there were all sorts of fanatics living in London. And so there was a sense that it was relaxed to be considered a radical and to live in London than it was to be out in the country. And so Keach moves his family to London in 1668, and they join a small General Baptist church in Southwark at that time. Um, Keach is ordained as a minister very shortly after, and then very shortly after that becomes friends with Hansard Knowles, who we discussed earlier as a particular Baptist, one of the leading figures of the particular Baptist, and William Kiffin. Such good friends, in fact, that Hansard Knowles is the one who performed the ceremony for his second marriage to Susanna Partridge in 1672. And it was in that same year, 1672, that Keach planted Horsley Down Baptist Church in Southwark, in the Horsley Down neighborhood. And that church, as we said, is the one that Charles Spurgeon would assume the pastoral, pastor, pastorate of in 1854. In the 164 years between Benjamin Keach, or the... 164 years, starting with Benjamin Keach to 1836, so just 20 years before Spurgeon. Take a guess at how many pastors the congregation had during that time. Ten would be a 16-year ministry, right? That would be a pretty significant time to be in the pastorate in our day. There were four. Benjamin Keach pastored for 36 years. His son-in-law, Benjamin Stinton, pastored the congregation for 14 years. After Stinton passed away, there was two years, and it was, the pulpit was taken by a man named John Gill. How many of you know John Gill? Another Baptist luminary. John Gill is, he is the only or one of the only commentators who has written commentary on every single verse of the Bible. John Gill. He pastored there for 51 years. John Gill, when he passed, was gone two years, and they brought in Dr. John Rippon. Dr. John Rippon was there 63 years. That brings us to 1836. Then there are three pastors between John Rippon. There's two years, eight years, two years, and we get Spurgeon in 1854. And that, that again, is... It's just another amazing piece of our Baptist heritage. 
these ministers did not view their association with the church, again, as a career platform to move on into some other bigger, better position where they could make more money. These men viewed their, their union to the church almost like a marriage. And if you wanted to take them as a pastor, so if someone wanted Brian, they wanted to take him, they would have to contact the church first and ask the church for permission to sort of court their senior pastor. And there's, there's another story of a man named Benjamin Bedham, who was a pastor in um, uh, Burton-on-the-Water, London, pastor Burton-on-the-Water Baptist Church. He was renowned for his rhetorical ability. A church in London, a very large, eminent Baptist church, wanted him to take their pastorate after their beloved pastor had died. They wrote to the church, and he said... I will submit to whatever my church wants. And the church said, no, you're not taking our pastor. And so he gave up, in a sense, a much bigger, more prestigious position because he was committed to his people. And that also is the heritage that we come out of as Baptists. Those are things that should inform our identity. They should inform how we think about church. So Benjamin Keach, during his time, he faced various national issues. So we talked about the Act of Uniformity, 1662. Does anyone know when that came to an end? The Act of Toleration, 1688. In 1688, the Act of Toleration is passed. That was during the Glorious Revolution. So you have the, the opening up of religious liberties in England. At this time, there was an end to 30 years of government-sponsored persecution, and the Baptists in London decided that they were going to convene to just discuss the states of the churches. These churches had been absolutely browbeaten by the government. They had been persecuted, you would think, almost to non-existence, but what we've seen is flourishing. And so as they step back now and assess the locations in which they find themselves <coughs> spiritually, there is this deep sense of we, we need to continue the reform. We need greater spiritual hunger. We need greater spiritual fervor. We need more proclamation of the word in the midst of our congregation. Our people need to be pushed on and on and on to seek the Lord. This, this persecution has left us in, in a state of squalor, in a sense. And so Keach headed one of the... the it wasn't called a focus group, but it was kind of like a focus group, on the maintenance of ministers. And he was just assessing whether or not the ministers in these Baptist congregations were paid enough, whether they were provided enough for. And he wrote several articles, several books, on paying your pastor. That it's very important that the churches provide for their ministers to free the ministers up to be able to do the gospel work within the congregation as well as the community. So Keach was, was tasked for that. The, the other thing that came out of this was the Second London Confession. You can get copies of this in a lot of different places. This also is part of our Baptist heritage. The Second London Confession became one of the basis for uh, the Philadelphia Association here in America, as well as the Charleston Association in Charleston. From First Baptist Church Charleston arose Southern Seminary. The foundation of their 
doctrine and piety was largely extrapolated from the Second London Confession. The abstract of principles at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary is abstracted from various confessional documents, but one of the, the leading lights of that is the Second London Confession. And so this is the tradition that we stand in. Um, and Benjamin Keach was a very important part of this. He was a, a cornerstone for the construction of this. Another one of the significant issues for our day is hymn singing. How many of you, when we begin to sing hymns or songs in church, think, should we be doing this? Does anybody think that? No? This was a significant issue for the early Baptists. Whether or not it was okay, one, to sing it all in the congregation, or two, to sing anything other than psalms. Benjamin Keach on one side, Isaac Marlowe, William Kiffin on the other, began a long-track dispute against one another that became so hostile it fractured the London Association. So this was a significant issue. Ultimately, Keach's arguments won the day. Isaac Marlowe, the, on the side of him or psalms only, if they're singing at all, was a very wealthy jeweler in London. And his arguments were such. The use of hymns produced a sort of formalism like that of written prayers in worship. This was too close to papism or the state church. Second, he was convinced that the singing in the New Testament was connected to the extraordinary gifts of the, of the Spirit, and thus examples of singing in the New Testament had ceased along with other miraculous gifts. Third, he was convinced that congregational singing compromised the purity of the church because unbelievers might sing along too. And fourth, he was convinced that inviting women to sing in the congregation was a a clear breach of 1 Timothy chapter 2, 11, and 12. Keach responded to each of these. I wish I, I, I was going to write down some of the, the insults that they hurled at each other. So this, this went beyond mere rhetoric, straight to ad hominem. Um, Marlowe, the one I remember was he was called a brazen forehead, which I thought was, I thought was great. Keach which we're going to see as characteristic, pointed to Scripture. In the midst of these debates, in the midst of these disputes, Keach continually comes back to the Word of God because that is the foundation of everything that Benjamin Keach did. He pointed to Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual thong, songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. James 5.13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Keach did not argue just from mere pragmatic concerns. But Keach sought to ground each of these convictions in the Word of God. As he said, the Bible commands us to sing songs, hymns, spiritual songs. The, the us that it's commanding is we the church. And Benjamin Keach, in an effort to help his people understand the Word of God better, outlined his sermons and then wrote hymns to go along with his sermons for his congregation to sing and recite 
during their week. And now he was no Isaac Watts. His hymns are really pretty bad. But here, here we go. A father doth beget his, or his child beget, so begotten we are. By thine own word and spirit, Lord, and do thine image bear. He likewise doth his children clothe, and doth them also love. So thou most richly clothes all such that are born from above. The father feeds and does protect such who his children are. So thou dost feed and save all those who do not belong to thee. And also doth delight in them who him resemble do. To such who are most like to thee, thou dost chief favor show. A father loves his children should all live in unity. So thou delights to see thy saints walk in sweet harmony. He ever does o'erlook the faults which he in them does spy. So all thy, all thy people's faults likewise, thou dost, O Lord, pass by. Keach wrote hymns, and that, interestingly, if you take some of his hymn books and compare them with this, which is um, preaching from types of metaphors, originally called tropologia, Keach had another Baptist minister take a textbook written by Solomon Glassius and affix that to three sections of Benjamin Keach's sermons. The sermons follow the various heads of theology. So the first one is God the Father. That hymn follows very closely the metaphors that Keach draws from God the Father. So Keach was writing these hymns in an effort to help his people think through the word, to be meditating constantly, to set their minds on the things that are above. And Benjamin Keach saw this as a useful aid, as a help to them. So that is Benjamin Keach. And he died in the summer of 1704. And as I said, he was succeeded by Benjamin Stinton. That is a very brief sketch um, I encourage anyone who is further interested in digging in to get The Excellent Benjamin Keach by Austin Walker. It is a fantastic biography about him. But as we close, I just want to talk about a handful of things that we can recover from Benjamin Keach to aid us in our walk today. And one of those is the importance of the Word of God. Benjamin Keach writes, The more plain the word and law of the Almighty is, the more becoming the divine author and lawgiver, and profitable for mankind, as more easily understood and being like bread, accommodating to every palate. Benjamin Keach saw the Word of God as clear. Anyone can sit down with the Bible and by applying what he called the analogy of faith, that we let easier scriptures interpret harder scriptures, by sitting down with the Bible and interpreting the Bible on its own terms, anyone can read the Bible. That is grounded in Benjamin Keach's understanding of divine authorship. He saw the Bible... Genesis to Revelation, totally authored from God. 
It was spirit-inspired such that it was the Word of God, the authority of God in the midst of the congregation of God. And it was this that drove Benjamin Keach's preaching. It drove his ministry. It was a commitment to his understanding of the divine authority of Scripture. In one sermon on the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which we all know the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, at the end of it, the rich man is pleading with Abraham to um, let this let Lazarus go back and tell my family, for if they see one who's raised from the dead, surely they'll believe. But what is the response? Let them believe Moses and the prophets. Let them believe the word of God. Keach says, he himself says, had you believed Moses, you would have believed me. For he wrote of me, but if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? Oh, how doth our Lord magnify the written word? There is the same reason why Christ's word should not be believed by such as believed not Moses' writings, who confirmed his mission by miracles as our Savior did his. You therefore that despise the written word of God, should Christ come again and preach to you in such a state and condition as he appeared when on earth, you would not believe on him. If you do not believe the written word of God as it is now, should Christ return, should Christ appear and preach that gospel to you, you will harden your heart against him. Because the word of the, the Bible is the word of God. It is the authority of God, and it is through that word that the Lord converts. As we talked about, Keach labored to help his congregation understand the word in his preaching by giving them hymns at the end of every sermon. Though uneducated, Benjamin Keach himself labored to understand the word of God in its original languages, teaching himself Greek, teaching himself Hebrew. Like his poetry, his Greek and Hebrew also are not very good. But you see his desire, you see his hunger. And those are the things that I think we can look to from our Baptist heritage. You look at Isaac Watts, his hymns are much better. Isaac Watts, I'm sure, also desired the Lord. But Benjamin Keach spent his life in the service of his congregation for the glory of Jesus Christ. Another significant point was that Christ was front and center in Keech's ministry, and he did not shy away from offering the gospel to anyone. Keech prepared many, many sermons on the prodigal or the parable of the prodigal son. Um, this is an exposition of the parables, all sermons from Benjamin Keech. Um, I just I want to read from his application. He's talking here about the end of the parable where the father says, kill the fattened calf. Kill the fattened calf. In that, Keach sees the slaughtered Christ. In the same way that the father slaughtered the calf for a feast for his son, so Christ was slaughtered on our behalf so that by feeding on him by faith, we might enter into communion and fellowship with the Lord. Keach writes, this may tend, so this 
understanding of the centrality of Christ may tend to reprove such ministers who do not, as God commands, bring forth the fatted calf or the precious lamb of God for sinners to feed upon, or that do not preach Christ as the sum and substance of all their ministry. We preach Christ crucified, 1 Corinthians one twenty three. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them, Acts 8, 5. And St. Paul rejoiced that Christ was preached, though some preach him out of strife and contention, Philippians 1, 15. The great subject all the holy apostles preached was Jesus Christ, or a crucified Savior. By this you may know who, true men, may know who are true ministers from such who are corrupt or counterfeit or false teachers. Do they preach Christ? By this, ministers may learn what doctrine to preach. For as Christ must be received for justification and the best robe put on, so they must bring forth Jesus Christ still. A crucified Savior must continually be fed upon as long as we live. We must fetch all our hope, all our strength, all our comfort from Him always to the end of our lives. Then he always has, he has an application, he has a trial section in his sermons, which is a Test yourselves. Sinners, are you come to yourselves? Also know that you will not think of returning home to God until a famine arise in your souls and you see you have nothing but husks to eat. Do you hunger after Christ, long after Christ? Do you see that you must perish without Jesus Christ? The prodigal said, I perish with hunger. This caused him to resolve to go home. What is it which you feed upon? Is it upon Christ or something else? Something of your own? Or do you feed your carnal and sensual part and not consider your soul's want? Did you ever labor for the meat which perishes not? John six twenty seven. They that hunger and see that they are ready to perish will strive, labor, and do their utmost to obtain bread. The proverb is that hunger breaks stone walls. What will not men do before they die with hunger? Do you know the way in which you may meet with that meat which endures to everlasting life? And also who it is that must give it to you if you seek it. From him hath God the Father sealed, John six twenty seven. He that believed on him shall have this meat. Believing and eating is all one. You see what provision the blessed God has made for returning sinners and what entertainment you shall meet with. Methinks there can be hardly any poor sinner here, but should in the strength of God resolve to return to him in and by Jesus Christ. What are the sweet embraces of a gracious God not worth regard? He falls upon the neck of the returning prodigals and kisseth such. Also are not the best robe, the ring for the hand, and shoes for the feet, and the fatted calf worth seeking? All of these benefits of God in Christ. This proclamation of Christ crucified was central to Benjamin Keach's message. This desire to see the, the lost saved, to see the gospel proclaimed that all might believe. In the same, not a, a different sermon on the same parable... Um, from Luke 24, 24, Keach takes this as, his, as the verse. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Keach sees a twofold state that the son was found and alive, and before that he was lost and dead. He says of the deadness 
that it is spiritual deadness, spiritual lostness. He appeals to his congregation, oh, mourn over the dead, over your dead sons, dead daughters, dead husbands, dead wives, dead neighbors, that is those who do not know Christ. See what sin hath done, what evil is in it. It hath slain the soul, nay, the whole world. What fools are sinners who love their sins that have murdered their souls and exposed them to eternal wrath. I infer that we live among the dead, converse with the dead, and yet how few mourn over them. In some families, many lie dead, and hardly any there that there is not one or more dead. Oh, lament! People converse with the dead and are yet not afraid. The pestilence that fills houses with the dead is dreaded, but this plague, sin that slays millions and lays all men dead and full of the tokens, yet very few either fear it or strive to escape from it. When there was but one dead in a house in the land of Egypt, what sorrow or lamentation was there? But for those that are spiritually dead, few are concerned. Yet here is comfort for the dead. Christ that, Christ, that quickening spirit, is come to make the dead to live. He can raise the dead. You hath he quickened that were dead in sins and trespasses. Even when we were dead in sin, he hath quickened us together with Christ, such that our dead may in a moment be raised to life. The dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they shall live. Such was the preaching of Benjamin Keach. He had an understanding of the, the pollution, the corruption, the degradation caused by sin. He had an understanding of the lost and sinful state in which humanity was. And he saw that the only solution was Christ crucified. And Keach's preaching, Keach's ministry was characterized by this, that he preached Christ from the Word of God so that people might be saved and so that the Christians that he was preaching to would grow in grace and godliness. That is central. That is the theme that I would love for us to take away from Benjamin Keach. Do we hunger after the Word of God not maybe to the point that we're going to learn Greek and Hebrew because we have a lot of great English versions, but do we hunger after the Word of God as our forebears hungered after the Word of God? Do we see the famine, the spiritual dearth that we live in with those around us, and do we see Christ as the remedy? Not one option of many different remedies, but that Jesus Christ is the remedy to fix this pollution, this corruption, the deadness of sin. Benjamin Keach certainly did. And Benjamin Keach's proclamation of the gospel fit the seriousness and the significance that he saw all of this as taking. Any questions on Benjamin Keach? I don't know that I can answer it. If not, we'll close in prayer. If you want to look at any of these books, by all means, come. Our gracious Lord, we thank you again. Um, we thank you that we stand in the long line of faithful ministers. We thank you that we stand in the long line of countless Christians that we will never know the name of until we meet them in glory. 
Lord, we pray that you would transform us. We pray that you would give us a hunger for your word, a hunger to know Christ. We pray, Lord, that we too would see the seriousness of sin, that we would lament and mourn the deadness in our midst, Lord, and in in the midst of which we live and move. I pray, Father, that we would be passionate about the proclamation of Christ. I pray that we would see the centrality of your reconciling work in Christ as you are bringing all things, all things, Lord, in heaven and on earth to conclusion in him. Lord, let us not be ashamed. Let us never be ashamed of this gospel message that you have given us. Lord, I pray that it would go forth from this congregation mightily and that we might be a church growing in fruitfulness and planting churches and just moving forward as we continue to consider how the gospel transforms and informs our lives. Lord, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.